This is a code red. I repeat, this is a code red. There are spoilers ahead, so make sure to watch all of Stranger Things 3 on Netflix before going any further. Earth, America, Indiana, Hawkins, a growing patriotic community and a shining example of the American dream. It's summer 1985 in Hawkins, Indiana. The perms are tight, the shoulders are padded, and the Starcourt Mall just opened its air-conditioned doors. Families, friends, and of course, teenagers can come together to shop, hang out, dine, and enjoy. Starcourt is the biggest set we've ever seen on Stranger Things. It's built inside a real mall near Atlanta that has two stories and almost 40 stores. Starcourt Mall has it all. The early days of the, the writer's room are always, for, for us, the most fun because you're just blue sky. This is Ross Duffer. He and his twin brother, Matt, are the co-creators of Stranger Things. They're also executive producers, writers, directors. They're involved in pretty much every layer of the show. When Ross says that they were blue-skying, he means that at this point in the process, they're gathering the big ideas for what could happen. Without any pesky details, no constraints, no clouds in the sky. It gets much more challenging after that. Once you've come up with the cool ideas to try to make it all work together and all these various storylines sort of weave in and out together and then you just keep running into walls. But in the first few weeks of sketching out the season, they're not worrying about running into walls. They're just trying to see which ideas stick to them. And opening a mall in Hawkins, that idea stuck. The mall, when that was pitched, we got that. that's it. We got to do a mall. This is Matt Duffer, you know, the other Duffer. And this kernel of an idea that popped into this massive mall setting started in the Stranger Things writer's room. And it immediately felt like, oh, this is going to be one of the touchstones of the season. It just felt so fun and so real to what it feels like to grow up in a small town in a town like Hawkins, which a few of us did. Paul Dichter is one of the six writers on Stranger Things, counting the Duffers. He's been on the show since the beginning, and he's right. Starcourt Mall became a touchstone in Stranger Things 3. It's where we see Steve Harrington fall down more than a few notches in the Hawkins High hierarchy. It's where Eleven becomes more like yourself. And it's where we see some of the most heartbreaking moments of the season. I mean, the final chapter is actually called The Battle of Starcourt, so it's a pretty big deal. Starcourt Mall is one of the finest shopping facilities in America and beyond. So come on down and remember, Starcourt Mall has it all. You might even say that like Manhattan in Sex and the City, Starcourt Mall became a character in the show. So we wanted to spend some time getting to know that character. And there's a lot to get to know. But this is just the beginning. Over the next three episodes, we are talking with the cast and crew of Stranger Things to dig into the whys and hows of season three. We are going to take that freight elevator miles and miles underneath Starcourt and find out how the Cold War got to Hawkins. We're going to spend quality time with the Mind Flayer, from the people who created him to the people he possessed. And we're going to reveal all the Easter eggs that line Starcourt Mall, like how one of the set designers put the lost lottery numbers in the mall's blueprints. Bet you didn't know that one. And there's a lot more you're going to find out, too. I'm your host, Dan Taberski. I'm a filmmaker, a director, a podcaster, and I'm a big fan of Stranger Things. So grab your walkie-talkies and pull up your leg warmers, because this is Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3. Episode 1, The Starcourt Mall.
I love the mall. It's so cool. I remember the, the first time I stepped on that set, I was just in awe. It was like traveling back in time, basically. You recognize that voice, right? It's Sadie Sink, who plays Max Mayfield, a.k.a. the high-scoring arcade girl from season two. This season, she is Elle's BFF and Lucas's on-again, off-again girlfriend. They pay such close attention to detail. Every little detail, every store, inside every store, it's all been, like, 85. Everything's 80s. In fact, everything in the writer's room starts with the 1980s. Paul and the writers, most of them were actually suburban mall rats in the 80s and 90s, which was helpful when they were figuring out what would go inside Starcourt Mall. We all sat around and we looked at, you know, we spent hours talking about what the stores would be and what the anchor stores would be. And somebody would say Sam Goody and everybody would throw their arms up in triumph and tell seven Sam Goody stories. One of the first things the writers do when brainstorming a season is make a pop culture calendar of whatever time they're going to be in. So for Stranger Things 3, that's July 1985. Careless Whisper by Wham! was topping the charts. George Romero's Day of the Dead premiered. Coca-Cola launched New Coke. And shopping malls filled with national chains were taking over suburbia. You go ask anyone else in this town. They all love the mall. Reliving all of these 1985 events and all the stores they would have gone to back then, it snowballed into what could actually happen at that mall. It was really fun and also kind of really fun from a storytelling perspective of, okay, so there's a gap. What are we going to use? Are we going to use the mannequins? Is there a Jeep inside the mall? You know, or, or like a giveaway car. Like if there is, we'd be crazy not to do something with that car. It's sort of a great starting place for generating little kernels of ideas. Like last year, we'd had an arcade, and it didn't really figure into the plot in a major way. That's Matt Duffer again. And we always regretted that because it was such a cool location when we saw it. And so we were like, we know that Chris, you know, our production designer and Jazz, are set that they're going to make this incredible, gorgeous mall. we got to make sure that we're going to be in there a lot. So that the plot needs to somehow revolve around the mall. So the writers started pulling from their own lives. The mall near us really changed the fabric of the town that I grew up in. Paul, the Duffers, and the other writers, they knew that opening a mall in Hawkins would create stakes for the characters and the town because they watched it happen in their own suburban childhoods. Curtis Gwynn, a co-executive producer and new writer this season, he is still troubled by what a new mall did to his town growing up. You know, people used to have stores and <laughs> you know, in their own towns, and you couldn't do that anymore. I remember there was a, a woman who was my, my friend's mom, and she had like a, a, a knitting store in town. And like when the mall went in and it had like Joanne's Fabrics or whatever the hell it was, something with like knitting and stuff, she drove out of business and it just was like no one went there anymore. The writers knew that the typical 80s Main Street-destroying mall would create new opportunities and motivations for their fictional characters. Like with business at Millvault slowing to a crawl, Joyce would have a lot more free time to investigate whatever the hell was going on with her refrigerator it magnet. Fell night, it lost its magnetism. Oh, did it? And the same exact thing happened at my house the day before. Wow. And I thought, okay, that's weird, right? Why are all these magnets suddenly losing their magnetism? Hawkins residents who care about preserving downtown would protest at town hall and give Mayor Klein a reason to call Hopper over there. And it would inspire Nancy to pitch a story to her sexist bosses at the Hawkins Post. I mean, I know everyone loves them all, but 
How many small businesses have closed since it opened? Look, crap on the mall all you want, Nancy. Starcourt still gave the writers a perfect front for the Russians, one of the two main storylines this season. And most importantly, the mall offered a level of seclusion that is absolutely necessary in order to keep Stranger Things believable. It's a contained space, so you can go into the mall after it's closed, you can lock the doors, you can hide in the stores, you can do all sorts of things that you might have a harder time doing in downtown. And a big part of that is the concern that we always have in the back of our minds, which is trying to keep these supernatural happenings in Hawkins sort of plausibly secret from the rest of the world. And that became harder and harder with each season as the monsters got bigger and the action got crazier. It very quickly felt like if you have a monster smashing through downtown Hawkins, people are going to see it and call the army and it's going to be on TV and that's going to be that and everything's going to change. Whereas you could conceivably go crazy in the mall and keep it contained inside the mall, which is a big part of the business of of trying to tell this story in a believable way. So Starcourt Mall really did have it all. But at this point, it was still just words on a page. It was up to the art department to bring the mall to life. I certainly appreciate the amount of effort that goes into the creation of a mall in a way that I could never have before. I mean, just each storefront is its own ordeal to design and fabricate. So yeah, I mean, it's intense. Chris Trujillo is the production designer on Stranger Things. He runs the art department, which, quick filmmaking lesson, is responsible for designing and building all the sets. So basically everything physical that you see on the show. So when the Duffers decided, yeah, we want a mall, they texted Chris, the set decorator, Jess Royal. It's always exciting, and then there's always that feeling of like, oh, shit. And these guys. I'm Sean Brennan, art director. John Snow, assistant art director. An art department either builds sets in a studio space or on location, which really means just in a place that already exists. To give Starcourt Mall that sense of grandeur, to really crank up the scale of what could be done there, Chris and his team decided to film on location. After looking at a dozen or so shopping centers, they found Gwinnett Place Mall in Duluth, Georgia, an Atlanta suburb. Gwinnett Place opened up in 1984, so architecturally it had exactly the right look. Plus it had a second story overlooking an atrium that just felt inherently dramatic and epic. In one of the early meetings with mall security, Chris and Jess spotted this scrapbook. The first couple of pages had a bunch of newspaper clippings, photos, and stuff like that. And as they were flipping through, there was a picture that caught Jess's eye. It was what one of the atriums used to look like. There were big old planters and a food court lined with wood-slatted benches and a huge fountain right in the middle. So we kind of like, we're like, you know, this is really good, and this is what someone saw for this mall, and that mall was built in 1984 anyway. So we were like, we should just like kind of own this um, concept and try to bring it back as close as we can to what it was originally. Which, as you can imagine, is not easy. Starcourt Mall is like having 40 individual sets under one not-so-monster-proof roof. Chris and his team had to redesign the mall itself. They had to pick out carpet, they had to put in planters, but they also had to design all the stores in it. Almost every single store in Starcourt Mall was completely realized, whether or not we ever saw our main characters go in or not. Like The Gap, Lovelace Lingerie, and, of course, Wixen Sticks. 
I know what you're thinking right now. Wix and Sticks? They never go into a Wix and Sticks. You're right, they didn't. But it's there. Uh, it's one of those things where the Jeffers were like, whoa, like Jess, like we should have written something for Wix and Sticks. And I was like, I know, like it's not too late. So there were there were talks of um, like Dustin going in and grabbing a candle as a weapon or something later, but it just never worked out. Since Wix and Sticks was a real store that sold novelty candles, Jess researched what it looked like in 1985. And then she filled it with shelves, a register, candles with tags. Even though we never actually see any of the stuff in Stranger Things, it's all physically there. It just reached all the, it hit, my vision was realized in Wix and Sticks. And it's such a weird store anyway, like Yankee Candle, but weirder. The wood and the color tones and like the macrame and can just candles, but all the like this candle like sculptured candles, like that are like the you know the ribbons of wax and stuff. And I had like someone make those in South Georgia for us. Um, who still does that? Who does that? I don't know. It's one of those weird things I find at estate sales. The people never burn; they hold on to them. And they get like dusty and gross. So like I was very familiar with the look, but to create a whole store of them was very special for me. Almost every story you see in the background had to be researched, measured, mapped out on a computer architecture program, painted, and filled with period-appropriate furniture, framed advertisements, and tagged products. All the restaurants in the food court, they needed 1980s machinery and menu boards. It was a Herculean effort. And then, thanks to Sean, John, and the rest of the art department crew, they were ready to start filming. Uh, everybody was happy. Everybody was so thrilled with them all. I remember going to my car, sitting in the parking lot, and, and literally almost crying. It was it was because it was just so exhausting. I mean, we were just go, 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 go. And then finally knowing that we had made it was just like, fuck me. Yeah, we got back to the office after that first day. Remember that? Yeah. When, it was open, when we opened the set, we got back to the offices, and we were, like, just exhausted. It just had, like, a like we'd just run a marathon or something. Yeah, it was it was 16 weeks of like extreme pressure and fear and worry and hoping that you got it right. And we did. We got it right. You're late. I'm sorry. Again. We're going to miss the opening. Yeah, if you guys keep whining about it, let's go. If you guys keep whining. Starcourt Mall is the perfect place for the Stranger Things gang to reunite. Oh, L, I wish we could make out forever and never hang out with any of our friends. Lucas, stop. Will thinks it's funny. Because it is. Yeah, it's so funny that I want to spend romantic time with my girlfriend. I'm spending romantic time with my girlfriend. We catch up with what's going on in their lives as they weave their way through the mall's second floor crowds on their way to sneak into George Romero's 1985 class Day of the Dead. Mike is spending a lot of time alone with Elle, making out to Corey Hart songs. Lucas and Max are also dating, but they're still hanging out with everyone, and Will, on the other hand, couldn't care less about any of their relationship shit. He just wants to play D&D. Curtis and the writers, they intimately know the relationship between malls and teenagers. Well, it's pulling well, it's pulling them into new identities, right? Like they're like you have literal trying on of new identities which is very teen i mean that is what you do you know i and it's in the span of like three years which seemed like forever to me back then i was like like i was like a nerdy kid who wore wore weird all yankovic t-shirts and got picked on to a classic rock i wore a who t-shirts and torn pants then as i got older and into into the night early nights became grunge and then i was like a fish head hippie and then you know it's like you're just trying on to see what suits you, which is actually really normal. 
for kids to be doing. They're chameleon-like, right? They're trying to figure out who they really are. So I, I think they're at that stage where they're like, we got to try on different identities here. We can't be the same forever. And that's starting to dawn on them. One of the major themes this season is change. Change is scary. It's inevitable. It's extremely pubescent. And Starcourt Mall is a big, fat, physical manifestation of change for Hawkins, but also for the kids, especially for someone like Eleven. She was raised completely isolated from society and now lives in a secluded cabin with the town sheriff. This is the first time in her life that she's able to shape and express her own identity. And the writers do that by having Elle and Max go on a shopping spree. Do you like that? How do I know what I like? You just try things on until you find something that feels like you. Like me? Yeah, not Hopper, not Mike, you. For Elle, this epic shopping spree with Max is a chance to exercise her independence and usher in a new transformation, a new change. It's the first time that she gets to find out what it means to look like herself. What would a girl who was, you know, so sheltered and living in a cabin wear when she gets out into the real world and gets to go to the mall and buy her own clothes? Amy Paris was brought in as the costume designer for season three. At this point, the main characters have designated styles, so Amy's building off those and adjusting small details. But this is new territory for Eleven's character, because she's no longer wearing basement hand-me-downs from Mike or Hopper. So Amy looked to the actress who plays her, Millie Bobby Brown. She was the one that I felt like I relied on the most to tell me how she felt, because it's one thing if she was still playing Eleven, you know, kind of sheltered, in Hopper's cabin, never going out. So giving her those exaggerated silhouettes, the baggy pants, the blousey shirts, she looks more like somebody that is from the 80s and that is figuring out her clothes. In this montage scene, Eleven and Max are running around the mall. They're trying on bright neon-colored tops and pleated pants at the Gap. Madonna's material girl blasts in the background. It is fully 1985. So we'd try on stuff, and, and there were things that she didn't love, and we used that in the montage. So the way she reacts to the clothing is sort of how she really felt about the clothes. The scene is important because we get to watch Eleven and Max bond for the first time. Before now, they weren't close. They didn't really trust each other. But then they learn the lifelong lesson that there's more to life than stupid boys. But it's not just the kids from Hawkins who were shopping at Starcorn Mall. The creators knew that the mall would draw people in from the surrounding Indiana towns, too. And Amy has to dress all of these mall rats. I think for the mall, we probably fit well over 1,500 people in period clothing. On any given day, there would be around 300 extras when they were filming at the mall. And sometimes they're shooting multiple scenes that take place on different days. And you can't have everyone wearing the same outfits over and over again. So Amy and her team needed multiple outfits for each extra almost every day they filmed at the mall. Not only are you dressing more than 300 people that are inside the mall, but then you have to uniform everybody that works at the mall. So Amy and her team started researching what all these different fast food spots had their employees wearing back then. And then, all of a sudden, they're searching for 1980s Burger King uniforms on eBay and Etsy. And people still sell them. So we were able to buy two full sets and a third shirt. And then we made pants to match. So we had 
three original Burger King uniforms. We reached out to Hot Dog on a Stick because they were at the mall and they were in the food court. And they were so excited to give us uniforms. In fact, they remade the shirts. They supplied us with the actual uniforms, which was really helpful and really nice. To make the hot dog on a stick employees and all the mall rats feel like they were taken straight out of a time machine, they have to be decked out in the right 1980s gear from their shoelaces to their hair. I mean, all my hopes and dreams were lots of perms, you know. <laughs> just, I just want, you know, I mean, the more perms we would have, the better. Sarah Hinsgall is the head of the Stranger Things hair department. To figure out all the right do's to do, Sarah would watch 80s movies, she'd browse the internet, and she would scroll through Instagram. But also a lot of memory sense. I mean, there is, I remember all the boys in my school, they all had rat tails. And I remember even being like a little girl and I was like, oh, that's not okay. Like, it's just not okay. So I was very insistent on some of these things that I just remember so vividly to get that on screen because I think it must be what most people took away from the 80s. And I also think Stranger Things is just fun also. So we can just really go there with all this. We can pop it. It's summertime. It's happy. It should be big. It should be curly. It should be rat tails. And it should be a big bangs, you know, everything. So Sarah and her team went big. She estimates they gave 5,000 haircuts this season. They had 300 wigs, 20 jerry curls, and 250 perms. And keep in mind that these aren't the beautiful beach wave perms you see nowadays. These are tightly wound, astronomically large perms. And they're called perms for a reason. They're essentially permanent for months. These extras have to live with them through their day-to-day life, walking around Atlanta well after their one or two days of filming on set is over. Thankfully, or maybe deeply unfortunately, Eleven does not have a perm. Instead, her hair is slowly but surely growing out from that season one buzz cut. And as each season goes on, Sarah finds new ways to add to Eleven's character through her hair. When she's with Hopper in the cabin, it's parted in the middle. And when she leaves the house, she kind of steps it up a little more. But she tries to protect him. Don't you still? I felt like a lot like that with my father when I was that age. I would never have taken lipstick on in the house or remotely think that I was trying anything or I was trying to be sexy or cute or you know what I mean? Like, no, you don't want your parents to see that. So she's very different when he's around. And then we get into the mall and she's flipping her hair around and trying everything out. I love when they go in and take that little photo shoot. That was a fun day. It was fun. Eleven can finally have fun. I mean, this is the most stable life that she's lived. She's got Hopper. She's got a boyfriend. She's going to the mall. She uses her powers to seek revenge on a group of judgmental teens by blasting a cup of orange Julius all over them, which is way better than using her powers to kill a bunch of dudes. Being at Starcourt Mall with Max, we get to see Elle let her guard down. We get to see this super powerful, but super normal teenage girl. And sometimes, part of feeling like a normal girl means confusing the hell out of your boyfriend. What are you doing here? Shopping. This is her new style. What do you think? What's wrong with you? You know she's not allowed to be here. What is she, your little pet? Yeah. Am I your pet? What? No. Why do you treat me like garbage? What? You said Nana was sick. She is. She is! 
While the girls are shopping to establish their independence, Mike and Lucas have dragged Will to Starcourt Mall. They're on an apology shopping tour, spearheaded by Lucas. He is the official girlfriend expert in the group. I really had no choice. I just wish you consulted me because the way you handled this, you're in deep shit. Lucas's advice, find the perfect gift. They stare helplessly at Lovelace, the lingerie store. They spritz perfume in each other's eyes at the perfume counter. And they get their hopes up at Zales. Excuse me, sir. Hmm. How much for this little teddy bear right here? Until they find out that little gold teddy bear is $300. $300? The boys' shopping trip is a failure. They don't find anything for Eleven. And right when they're leaving, they run into Max and Elle, who is feeling empowered by her new tousled hair and neon jumper. She's sick of Mike's lies, so she dumps his ass. I dump your ass. Mike and Lucas aren't the only boys having girl troubles on this season of Stranger Things. Ahoy, ladies! Didn't see you there. Would you guys like to set sail on this ocean of flavor with me? I'll be your captain. I'm Steve Harrington. No, man. When we first met Steve Harrington, he was the hot jock who knocked cameras out of nerds' hands. But after being heartbroken and beat up a few times, Steve's out of high school and his social status has plummeted. He's now working at an ice cream parlor called Scoops Ahoy. I love Steve as a character. This is Paul Dichter again, one of the writers. It's been really fun watching him go through this transformation over the course of three seasons. I think when we started talking about Steve in season one, he was the jock, jerk boyfriend. We thought of him as that trope, as that archetype of the asshole. And I think seeing what Joe was doing with the part, very quickly we kind of realized that we wanted to do more with him. The Duffers and the writers had to figure out what to do with Steve this season. And they had a lot of their own embarrassing teen job moments to inform Steve's downfall. Curtis, for example, worked at his mall's Arby's. I was at Arby's. That is not cooler than Steve. That is lower on the chain, believe me. My girlfriend was at Haagen-Dazs because the ice cream place was like, in the sort of hierarchy of the food court, the ice cream place was much better. It was like Haagen-Dazs. It was like high-end, like, you know, the, you know all, the, all the richie riches would go there and get their pints. You know, I was over at Arby's, which was like, in our town, was like, well, McDonald's is the elite Arby's is some weird, what is this place, Western? What, when people couldn't understand it. Roast beef sandwiches? What's going on over there? So I was definitely not cool. I couldn't get a job at the record store or at McDonald's or at haagen They wouldn't hire me. When I came into Arby's, they were like, here's your apron. Here you go. Let's get to work. They knew they wanted Steve to be scooping ice cream, but they weren't going to put him at a haagen They wanted to create their own Captain Hook's fish and chips. That is where Judge Reinhold's character, Brad Hamilton, works in the 1982 comedy classic Fast Times at Richmond High. Stranger Things 3 is dripping with Fast Times references, from the way Mrs. Wheeler gets out of the pool to comparing Susie to Phoebe Cates. But the biggest nod from the writers was to have Steve also work at a nautical-themed restaurant. The thing was he wanted it to be sort of demeaning for... Steve, and you've, you, uh, what I love about it, I love in any kind of movie or show when people have like essentially a uniform. You know, like comic strip characters, like I don't, not only mean comic books, but the comic strips, it's like they have a uniform and it's very, they become iconic. So to stick him in the sailor suit, and he's, be, he's in the sailor suit for the entire season, essentially, um, I just love it. It just becomes like, a to me, an awesome Halloween costume right away. 
I got to tell you, while we were while we were filming, I went to Atlanta's Dragon Con, and we were still filming season three, but somehow, maybe the teaser had come out, but there was a guy dressed like Scoops Ahoy Steve, and I went up to him and I was like, I made that. <laughs> this is Amy Paris again, the costume designer. Amy knew that the Scoops uniform had to be embarrassing, but still kind of cute. I mean, it's Steve Harrington we're talking about. And it had to be something that Joe Keery and Maya Hawk, a.k.a. Steve and Robin, could wear for almost the entire season. I relied on, um, you know, finding real images of sailors from the 1800s to the 1980s. We started with two different hat options. You know, we've got the sort of white Dixie cup hat that they're wearing, but I also offered a navy flat cap, which was sort of that flat pancake style that was navy from the 1800s, and across the front for both of them, we wrote Ahoy. But Joe really liked the white uh, Dixie Cup hat. The Duffers liked it. And as much as I liked the nerdy blue flat pancake style, I think it was the right choice to go with the white because it was just a little—it was that step too nerdy and weird. (laughs) And then what he's added to his uniform is an ice cream holster that is red fabric. (laughs) It was Joe's idea, and I thought it was a brilliant idea. So between props, Matt Marks, props, and I, we had um, our tailors make a little holster of red canvas fabric. And it helps him to quickly grab his ice cream scooper out of his belt loops. I'm not sure if keeping your ice cream scooper in a holster would pass Hawkins, Indiana Health Code. But in the words of Steve Harrington, as he tossed that Dixie Cup hat off his head, screw company policy. You wear that red ice cream scooper holster. Make it iconic. But Scoops Ahoy plays a much bigger role than just a visual clue into Steve no longer being the cool kid. It's the center of the action for the other plot line. Dustin, Robin, Erica, and Steve coming together to talk about how they're going to take down the Russians. Since so much happens here, the art department had to build out the entire restaurant. Scoops Ahoy was a fun one for us because it was a, a, a design and build from the ground up. Sean, the art director, he loved working on scoops, from the vent in the back room to the booth that Dustin and Steve catch up at. So do you really just get to eat as much of this as you want? Yeah, I mean, sure. It's not a really good idea for me, though. You know, I got to keep in shape for the ladies. Yeah, and how's that working out for you? Ignore her. She seems cool. She's not. So uh, where are the other knuckleheads? That booth that they're eating at, it looks like your average red vinyl booth, right? But it's actually shaped like a boat. The boat bow, you know, on the front side was the funnest part. You know, that was a very fun little element. Everybody thought we were crazy for doing it, but uh, it looked awesome. Unfortunately for Sean, the boat barely made it on screen. But you can't see it when Steve, Robin, and Dustin close up shop after translating the Russian code. But that's about it. These thoughtful choices, they add character and depth to the world building of Stranger Things. And it helps the actors go deeper into their roles. As an audience member, we might not notice these things, but they matter. And sometimes, if we pay close attention, they can even act as clues. Just speak louder. I intercepted a secret Russian communication. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought you said. So in the third chapter, the case of the missing lifeguard, Dustin and Steve suspect that something evil is afoot at Starcourt Mall. Evil Russian. Equipped with binoculars and a sense of patriotic duty, Steve and Dustin follow a suspicious-looking man they believe could be an evil Russian. They try to be sneaky, but the possible evil Russian senses their stares and turns around. Slow down. We're losing. You're getting too close. Watch it, dude. One. Hello. Yes, I am fine. 
How are you? And then there, right there, as Dustin and Steve are peering around that map of the mall, bring your attention to what's behind Dustin, right above his shoulder. It's the window display at Walden Books, a popular bookstore in 1985 that closed in 2011. You can just make out the books in the window, their posters prominently featured. The first one is Breaking with Moscow by Arkady Shevchenko. He was the highest ranking Soviet official to defect. That book was published 1985. And the other book on display you can't even see, Tom Clancy's debut novel, The Hunt for Red October, a classic 1984 Cold War tale. And this backdrop to Steve and Dustin spying on a guy who they think is a Russian spy, but actually turns out to be my favorite twist, a jazzercise instructor, is, in my opinion, one of the best clues of the season. It's an Easter egg that lets us know that the fun, bright, poppy Starcourt Mall that we spent all this time getting to know is about to show us her dark Soviet underbelly. And we're going to follow the Scoops troop straight into the Cold War next time on Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3. The Red Army has infiltrated Hawkins, and if we are found, they will torture and kill us. You just walk through all these crazy, huge warehouse hallways, and then you part this door, and it's Russia. I think, I mean, we always talk about Empire Strikes Back. We always wanted, like, a darker ending. We wanted to give him, like, a Han Solo, kind of a sacrifice moment. The Death Star uh, is how we referred to our underground Russian military facility that is uh, deep under Hawkins. They just keep pushing it a little too far, a little too far, you know, to the point where, uh uh-oh, we're in an adventure now. Shit. Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3 is produced by Netflix and Pineapple Street Media. You can listen to this show on Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you get podcasts. And I'm your host, Dan Taberski. Thanks for listening.